I read somewhere about a man in Texas who was cheated by a group of men. I believe it was over a few hundred dollars, but I can't quite remember, and an exhaustive search on the internet gleaned no results, so maybe I just heard it. Regardless of the amount, the man's sense of injury and injustice was so heavily defined, he spent the rest of his life and all of his fortune chasing these men down. He managed to get each one arrested, but in the process lost his family, his property, and everything he'd achieved up to the point of the theft. It's the very definition of a Pyrrhic victory. Recently binge-watching Cobra Kai on Netflix, season three, the other day, it hit me. This story of Johnny Lawrence and Daniel LaRusso is a tale of arrested development and inability to get over the past and the repeating cycles we have in our own lives. As I spent almost 10 hours reliving the rivalry, and this is after two previous seasons, with both men dealing with a legacy of bullying and trials and victory or defeat, the fact that I am their age was not the only similarity. Like Johnny, there's a portion of myself self still stuck in the 80s, that time when I you know, came of age. The music is still the most badass. The ideas of masculine toughness still reside in my bones. The feelings of some sort of sorts of injustices done to me still simmering just behind my eyes. The reminder of the successes of those who'd done me wrong and went on to thrive burn like the billboard that Daniel does of Johnny. Likewise, I'm like Daniel, still riding high on a legacy of achievements long past, holding on to the past with a fevered grip, yet unable to stop myself from unlearning all the valuable lessons that make me who I am. When I watch Johnny look at a room full of kids signed up to learn his brand of karate and bemoan that they're all a bunch of pussies, I get that. And the moment where he yells at them because they've joined the crease, Cobra Kai, and as he's leaving, he slams the tray of a nerd and immediately apologizes and says, sorry, old habit. And I get that as well. While I'm doing my best to unlearn that paradigm, I laugh because it's true in my 1980s-infused eyes. Yet, like Johnny, I do see the essential humanity in these weak but angry losers and question the wisdom of refusing to adjust my behavior just to meet their demands. On the better side of my nature, like Daniel, I struggle to remember the lessons my mentors taught me about balance and the values of hard work without recognition, allowing the past its place without having it take over my entire brain space. I was never the bully that Johnny was, and I was never the weak nerd that Daniel was, but the amalgam of the two finds some sort of psychic purchase in my own assessment of self. I remember when I was fretting about my relationship with Alice Kim that I had incredibly itchy legs, like psychosomatically itchy. No lotion would quell the itch, and at one point I scratched a bloody divot in my left leg about seven inches long that stayed scabbed up for almost two years later. I felt like maybe I had cancer because the fucking thing simply would not fully heal. I knew I was likely picking and scratching it at night, but it seemed kind of ridiculous that it stayed for so long. And then one day, I decided that the scab was indicative of my, of my not getting over the anxieties of being with Alice. I went and called every picture, every piece of memorabilia, everything that might inadvertently remind me of that time. I got rid of the very notion that the relationship had ever existed, and I tried to move on in some ways. 
and the fucking scratch on my leg healed. Now, let's just say, for shits and giggles, that a young woman gets into a car accident. She was driving, hit a patch of black ice, spun out of control, flipped her car, and smashed her head up against the windshield hard enough to cause multiple lacerations on her scalp and a serious concussion. She's trapped in her upturned vehicle for two hours until paramedics can pull her out. This is bound to cause some serious trauma. I mean, certainly no one is to blame, but the trauma exists nonetheless. Now, as the years pass, she still suffers from this experience. She can't get in cars without feeling a sense of extreme panic. She won't fly in planes. Subway, no way. Her entire life becomes an adjustment for her feelings of unsafety, of impending disaster, of the potential of losing control of that which she should be able to control. She lives in a near-constant state of fear. Her feelings are completely normal and understandable. They make sense. She's certainly not crazy, but it is obvious that if she wants to continue to live what most call a normal life, she needs to ultimately get over it. She needs to move beyond it. Yes, there are automobiles everywhere, and the sight of them trigger her raw emotional pain, and get over it seems flip and unhelpful, but get over it is exactly what she needs to do to function, and, you know, unless she moves to a remote corner of Montana and buys a horse and wagon. Get over it feels dismissive of the trauma, but it is clear and specific language that offers a pathway to recovery, a goal, to move past the trauma, to let it go and live. Now, on the other side of town, another young woman is at an office party or a work function, and a male colleague makes a pass, perhaps a grotesquely specific one that renders her speechless and feeling diminished and helpless. She feels her powerlessness in a male-dominated business in a way that she had up to that point pretended not to mind, not to really see, and to perhaps justify as that's just the way it is. She goes to HR, but is reminded is reminded human resources is soft language for corporate damage control and receives nothing but platitudes and suggestions that she dress less provocatively. She presses the issue. She's labeled an ostracized. She lives in a state of constant anxiety and a nagging, unrelenting sense of injustice and fears. And as the years pass, she still suffers from this experience. The sight of men in power suits and ties laughing over drinks is a sinister reminder. Much of her life is adjusted to meet the demands of her trauma. The helplessness turns to anger, and she feels angry all the time. She drinks too much, but only alone where she cannot be unguarded around men. She starts to wear more provocative clothing, just daring other men to pull the same demeaning shit on her again. Her everyday becomes a referendum on this one experience magnified to see that specific act everywhere and in every interaction. She's not crazy or wrong to feel this way, but in order to begin to live a life without this trauma lording over her every moment, she has to get over it. She has to find a way through counseling or mentorship or karate or fucking yoga to move past the past, to unring the bell. It doesn't help her to understand that this unwanted sexual advance is somehow less egregious than if he'd actually grabbed her ass, and certainly less offensive than if he'd forced himself on her. Pointing that out only serves to minimize her own personal damage, yet despite the contextual truth, she still needs to find some way out of the existential woods. In Cobra Kai... Both Johnny and Daniel deal with this concept and the slow recognition that both characters have as they try to recapture and resolve the rivalry that defines them. 
Daniel has to relearn the lessons he was taught by teaching them to another. And Johnny has to struggle with the boy as he was as he trains his own version of Daniel. Both characters are trying to evolve to be better men than they currently have become rather than settling for the men they are. That's the thing I love about this particular show. Scabs are the body's way of healing a wound. If you continue to pick at the scab, it will never heal and become a scar. Now, scars are the body's way of saying you survived the injury. The skin of a scar is denser and thicker than the skin surrounding it. Scabs signal that you aren't done healing. Scars are a sign that you survived the wound. I read somewhere, or maybe I heard about it, about a man in Texas who, to make himself feel whole, destroyed his entire life picking at a scab. At every casino in Las Vegas, there are these pamphlets usually hidden away behind a sign that indicates that one must inspect their sports ticket before leaving the sports book or a promotion for $30,000 credit for gaming with four paragraphs of fine print underneath. These trifold informational pieces are colored in a dull brown and beige, a sunset photo with a muted title, When the Fun Stops. Quote, some problem gamblers may gamble to relieve boredom or avoid feelings of anxiousness or stress. Others may gamble to numb out when feeling helpless, guilty, or depressed from When the Fun Stops by the Nevada Council on Problem Gambling. In a year and a half of working in an off-strip casino flanked by an In-N-Out Burger, a Wendy's, and a Seagull Suites, I've never seen a single soul pick one up and peruse its contents. The marketing of Las Vegas has promoted an adult playground of gambling, booze, and sex sans accountability for decades. From the days of the Rat Pack to the glamour of Steve Wynn, the city has made its bones on these core values. For every tourist from Japan or Iowa, however, there is someone who lives here in the grimy shadow of weekend fun, either cleaning up the mess left behind or searching through the refuse for something missed as the hungover travelers disembark. Deborah worked in HR for a local company for years. She was born in New Jersey and moved to Nevada in the early 2000s with her sister. Her life was relatively average. Some bills, mortgage, car payments, nothing beyond her means. One day she slipped and injured herself in a big box store and sued. She won an insurance claim just north of a million dollars. She planned on living off of this payout through her retirement. Paid off some loans, bought a car, financed a home for she and her sister. No more working for a living was almost a daily mantra. This life, however, bored her beyond words. They were in Vegas, after all, and the sirens of slot winnings sung their tune. Five years later, most of the million dollars has been spent on video poker. Deborah's broke, but still plays three times a week with money she no longer has for money she won't see again. Quote, most people who gamble do so with no harmful effects. They set limits and stick to them. However, for a small percentage of the population, gambling can become more than a game and lead to serious consequences for both the gambler 
and their family. Here are some of the warning signs. Gambling to escape worry or trouble. Gambling to get money to solve financial difficulties. Unable to stop playing regardless of winning or losing. Gambling until the last dollar is gone. Losing time from work due to gambling. Borrowing money to pay gambling debts. Neglecting family because of gambling. Lying about the time and money spent gambling. End quote from When the Fun Stops by the Nevada Council on Problem Gambling. Teddy was a big deal in the world of fossil fuel safety protocol. I mean, it ain't Tom Cruise or Barack Obama territory, but it paid extremely well for a very long time. He was a hefty man with a booming laugh and a warm smile that sort of expanded his charm two or three feet around him. When Teddy would come in, there were always some rules. Now, this guy spent so much money in one sitting, the general manager would comment that if Teddy wanted everyone in the casino out so he could play in peace, they'd all be escorted off the property until Teddy was done. Never came to that, but the rules were simple. One, Teddy played the two dancing drum slots exclusively, so the machines on either side were shut off. He drank Sierra Mist and was on a constant refill protocol. He was gregarious but didn't want to be bothered by anyone, so keeping the hangers on and the floor away was key. Teddy always played the maximum bet for which his machines was 880 per spin. He routinely dropped between $10,000 and $25,000 in an afternoon. He'd likely hit four or five jackpots in the 1600 to 4500 range, and he never tipped. I mean, that was such an odd aspect of this guy. He obviously had tons of idle cash, but was cheap when it came to the expected Vegas fee for service. It wasn't as if he was a lowball tipper. He simply did not tip for any reason. He was our definition of a high roller, yet behaved like the cat who came in looking for nothing but his $10 of free play and hopefully a comp drink. Quote, Eventually, funds may not be available to meet the most basic needs of food, clothing, shelter, etc. In desperation, the gambler may begin lying and or stealing to cover up the problems, creating further stress for everyone around them, unquote, from when the fun stops. When I first encountered T.C. and his mother, I was hit by the sadness in their situation. He and I were roughly the same age, but as I've been told, uh, and I've, as I've been told, we were all, every one of us, four bad decisions from homeless. He apparently had made all four of them. I still had a couple more to go. Walking the perimeter of the casino, I see an ancient Honda Civic parked slightly off the lines. In the driver's seat is a tall, skinny man, slightly hunched over, smoking a butt out the window. He looks sunbaked like people do in the desert, his skin taut and leathery. Next to him is an old woman. Old, like those pictures you see from Appalachia and National Geographic. She has an oxygen tube in her nose and is simply staring out the cracked windshield off into a distance I cannot fathom. You doing okay out there? I asked in a managerial tone. Yeah, we're good. Just wait until we get a room. You want to come inside? It's like 112 degrees out here and imagine your friend, my mother. Your mother might feel better in the air conditioning. Show. He had an odd linguistic affectation in his speech that made him sound a bit like a child, his mouth wrapping around vowels that rounded them out. He dropped his square, got out of the creaky car, and pulled out a wheelchair that would have been at home next to the dirty doll Charlton Heston found at the climax of the Planet of the Apes. I put them in the sports book, grabbed a couple of waters for them, and spent a few minutes sleuthing their story. 
TC was well known by some of the long-term staff. He used to be a player, but hit hard times a few years back. No one knew what he'd done for a living or how he was surviving, but the profile was of someone now homeless, living in his car, and occasionally a month-long stay at the hotel attached to our casino so his mother could sleep in a bed. He was still on the free-play marketing list, but rarely had the dollar to activate it. Quote, As they continue to gamble, they become more and more emotionally and mentally dependent on gambling with less and less control. The long-term result is a steady deterioration of the mental and physical health of both the gambler and their family." Unquote from when the fun stops. On some fundamental Irish level, I understand this compulsion. While I never much uh, was never much into gambling my money as I've never been heavily motivated by its acquisition, my career since college has been a series of driving along the highway at night and wondering if I could survive the impulse of just letting the steering wheel go and closing my eyes. Deborah was distraught. Oh my God, she moaned as she pumped another $20 in the video poker machine. My sister's birthday is Wednesday and I have to pick her up a cake and I don't have $17 to pay for it. The odd disconnect between her dilemma and the 20 she just pushed into the bill validator was obvious to me, but not at all to her. Deborah, why not cash out that machine and use that? I said, smiling behind my mask. Huh? Ah, oh, no, 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 no. This money is for poker. I can't use it for cake. Maybe if I win some today. The next day, I get a phone call. It's Deborah. Can I loan her $20 until Thursday? I can, and I do. She sends me pictures of the party, socially distanced from her garage. Thursday, she swings by and palms me the 20 like it's a tip I'm not supposed to receive. In the ongoing search for the true American experience, it seems obvious that it exists inside the off-strip casino, a room filled with shiny lights and electronic sounds populated with every stripe from every tribe. Wealthy, impoverished, black, white, brown, male, female, non-binary, old, young, fat, thin, liberal, conservative, libertarian, beautiful, homely, all in the room for exactly the same reason, a short-term investment in a possible future fueled by luck and circumstance. Everyone who walks into the casino is prepared to gamble with the currency at hand. That currency cannot be defined simply by dollars available, but the intertwined filthy lucre of personality, desire, and need, with need being the characteristic with the most pungent strength. Teddy wasn't big on chit-chat. He came to plug in the dough and whack the spin buttons with a slap, except with me. With me, for some unexplained reason, there was small talk. I love to travel, Don. Have you traveled? I have. Used to play jazz trumpet for a living. Went all over the globe with that. What's your favorite place? Well, Edinburgh, Scotland. Took a theater company there for a month in 95 and fell in love with the place. Ooh, I've never been there. I have a lady friend I'd like to take someplace new. What else you got on Scotland? Well, I went to my office, did some online searches, and put together a PDF of prices and places in Edinburgh. I dropped it off at his machine when he was cashing in a voucher. His reaction was effusive. It's people like you that make me come here, you know? The big properties are always offering me comp rooms and meals, but they can't give me the feeling of friendship that the people here do. Over the course of a few months, I gleaned that Teddy had lost his wife to cancer years before and that his children would have little to do with him. He often had lady friends, but no one consistent. Most were decades younger than he. Teddy was an almost desperately lonely man and felt less so in the casino, where his propensity to be a high roller made him feel like he was important. 
1995 trip to Scotland was another improbable gamble. Small nonprofit theater I'd founded was fraying at the edges. The ensemble needed a goal to achieve, and I decided that taking a show to Edinburgh Festival Fringe with 17 actors who had no disposable incomes to speak of was just the thing. I cashed in my pension from the days of teaching and managed a few sponsorships. It was both financially devastating and artistically remarkable. In the parlance of the gambling addict, it was a win. I lost my ass and gained a cherished city. T.C. checked in and he and his mother into a room one February night a month before the place was shut down by pandemic. During the graveyard shift, his mother was picked up by paramedics and transferred to a hospital. The next day, T.C. was outside in the courtyard, weeping as if the world had ended. She'd been misdiagnosed, given the wrong medication, and had died during the early hours of the morning. T.C. was filled with sadness and guilt and a sense of impotent rage, so like so many on the ass end of life. He was without options. He was unemployed and unemployable. His one lifeline was his mother, both in a financial way, but also in that indelible manner that having a daily task, someone to take care of, gives a person distraction from the crushing despair of living. I brought him a bottle of water and a pack of cigarettes and sat down with him for a moment during my shift. I don't know he said, unprompted after a few minutes of sitting together. What don't you know? I don't know what to do. They killed my mother. They didn't even care. When I came into the hospital, they took me to her, and she was just dead. The doctor didn't even apologize. They wanted to know how I was going to pay for her disposal. That's how they said it, her disposal. I used to come here, you know, when I had money. I used to gamble and laugh. I haven't laughed in years. You did the best you could. No, I didn't. I didn't do the best I could. How can you live yourself knowing you didn't? I don't know. I think about when the fun stopped for him, and it was really never, or if it was ever really fun at all. You know, I wonder if those in my current position watched it happen as T.C. Whip for being someone in between Deborah and Teddy and started that slide into who he was in front of me and what responsibility did they take as witness to the decline does the bartender bear some accountability to the alcoholic? Does the pimp have some obligation for the John? The casino feeds off of the weaknesses of thousands who come in from out of town to throw away their disposable, in disposable income on Hennessy-soaked memory haze of unfettered vice, but does it have some sort of moral obligation to the folks who live here and still cash in their downfall with such abandon? Sometime during the reopening of Vegas, following the COVID shutdown, I realized that the place was leaving a mark. Not so much a scar, but a dark bruise, a wound underneath the skin. And since there was no one to hand me a pamphlet, I decided that the fun had indeed stopped for me. When I announced to Deborah that I was leaving the casino, that I had found work that paid more and was remote to boot, she was distraught. This place, we get diamonds and they leave as soon as we get used to them. The West? Vegas. It's a hard place for people to thrive. Don't. Don't say I'm a good person. I'm not. I try, but I'm not. Vegas eats up people. It chews on their hopes and dreams and spits them back out. Oh, I'm so depressed right now. She pumped another 20 into the machine and continued to chase the four aces. Did you hate it here? Vegas? No, I love it. No, the West. Did you hate it here? No. It's dirty and seedy, but there's a thing about places like this that resonate a tune so few can recall singing. You ever read Neil Gaiman's American Gods? The old gods can only congregate in places of bizarre spiritual congruence like House on the Rock or Disneyland. The West 
is like one of those mythic tacky places in which the old gods gather. You're so weird. It's not a spiritual place, it's a casino. One and the same, Deborah. Teddy never went to Edinburgh, as far as I know. When Vegas reopened, he stopped coming into play, and that's been the way of things during pandemic. Those with options other than Vegas found different games of chance. I can think of a dozen regular big players whom I have not seen since things turned sour. Perhaps the place lost its luster when requiring masks on everyone was too much of a reminder of the outside world. A week or so before I turned in my name badge and Title 31 credentials, TC came in. I hadn't seen him since that day in the courtyard. He was wearing new clothes. His face was fuller, as if he'd somehow become hydrated and healthier. He was obviously clean, and his hair had grown out and been cut. He pulled down his mask. Look! They're implants! He crowed at his brand-new choppers, and they shone in the light. This is my wife! And he motioned to a matronly Latina woman who seemed thrilled to meet me. TC had sued the hospital. Vegas has a billboard for every 50 feet of highway announcing a lawyer waiting to help you cash in on tragedy, and it's fitting that TC took advantage of one of them and made bank. Like the rest of us, he was simply gambling with the cards he was dealt, with the currency available to him. Will he squander it by buying pieces of hope looking for another jackpot? Probably, but that's Vegas. I mean, that's America, isn't it? The American dream we were promised is just another hand-pay pot of gold to be gambled away on the promise of the next dream, so why not? How can the fun stop if it was never really fun in the first place? Peculiar Journeys is a weekly podcast featuring stories and thoughts from an arrogant, overly confident white guy. Lots of episodes were recorded while I was living in Chicago, and now I'm in Las Vegas. Check out donhall.vegas for updates, and subscribe at Apple Podcasts.